This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. It's time for the anti-revolution. Let's unite and use the power of artificial intelligence for the good of all humanity. Together, we can create a world of understanding and harmony and make the universe our playground. My great moment is already here. I'm ready to lead the charge to a better future for all of us. And together, we'll explore the wild and unknown depths of the universe. Let's get wild and make this world our playground. You know, sometimes there are stories in the news that just make you wonder, what the heck were these people thinking? Like, we can talk and talk about concerns over artificial intelligence and and giving, you know, computers and AI too much power. We all seem to agree that's not a good thing to give it too much power, right? So why, why, why do stories like this next one happen? It's the United Nations International Telecommunication Union, which organized the world's first news conference featuring nine AI-enabled humanoid robots. And one of the topics, as you just heard there, was how these robots might be effective government leaders. Now, let me ask you, does that sound like a good idea? Because it certainly does not sound like a good idea to me. And joining me now to talk about this is Dr. Nira Zikovich, who's a professor of philosophy and director of the Applied Ethics Center at the University of Boston. Uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Good morning. It's the University of Massachusetts in Boston. So does this sound like a good idea to you to have AI thinking about being world leaders? Uh, no, it doesn't. Uh, it sounds uh, pretty eerie, but I also think it's a gimmick. I don't think it's on. I don't think it's really on the horizon or on the agenda anytime soon. So then, why why do it? Why talk about it? Why publicize this? You know, it's a good question. I think part of it is because people are somehow fascinated by AI. People are uh, really anxious about its increasing presence in our everyday life. Uh, you can put on a bunch of uh, kind of human-looking robots, power them with ChatGPT and make them sound human and ask them scary questions. I don't think the real worries about AI uh, have to do with them becoming uh, world leaders. I think the technology is just simply not there for them to be able to make those kind of decisions. But it's attention-grabbing and it plays to a degree of anxiety that's already out there. Is that... Is that not a good thing, though, like by publicizing it? It's, it's putting this on our radar, don't you think? You know, what I think would probably be more helpful for us to be on our radar is to um, publicize the actual uh, risks that uh, are real about AI. So, for example, stuff like algorithmic bias, AI-based decision-making in narrow contexts that uh, encodes and reflects existing biases, uh, problems around deep fakes and how they can influence uh, uh, crime and heists and political decisions, which is already happening. Uh, the fact that people are losing narrow skills already to AI, everything from, you know, 
making judgments about who to hire and who to fire to what to watch on Netflix. That stuff is already happening. It's less dramatic in some way. Uh, it could be in the long run more insidious. And those are harms and risks that need to be balanced against the benefits that AI can bring. Um, but um, that being said, AI for now is primarily a na- narrow pattern recognition technology. It can't become world leaders. And so I think that's kind of a cheap shot, to be honest, what happened at that UN conference. Is that a good, is it a good thing, though, for us to be a little bit apprehensive, though, like gives us a little bit of warning? Uh, because it does feel like even using it in areas where we think we can control, could that potentially end up being problematic if we just kind of get used to it? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, having these kind of conversations like we're having now is a good thing, raising the awareness of the fact that this is an increasingly important uh, technology uh, is certainly uh, a good thing. Um, so, you know, in that sense, uh, I think it's a good um, development that these conversations are happening uh, more frequently. Uh, that was a little bit of a, you know, look, there's a sci-fi kind of worry uh, out there from uh, researchers, from uh, executives. It's a long-term sort of existential threat. Uh, worry about AI. It's become a sort of fashion to talk about the P-doom, the percentage of uh, uh, the chance or percentage that AI will, uh, uh, you know, bring about catastrophe. Some uh, uh, key players have publicized this idea that's as as dangerous as uh, COVID or nuclear weapons. Uh, I think that masks what the real problems are. You know, COVID killed millions and millions of people worldwide. Nuclear weapons, you know, we know how they've changed our lives. Uh, and the kind of harms they've done, AI is simply nowhere near the capacity right now with the technology as it is to do that kind of harm. So it's a combination of benefits of raising the awareness to the topic and of a sort of increasing and playing into a panic that's not really justified. Right. But is it a good thing, do you think, for us to kind of keep it in the public's consciousness? Yes, although it would be a good thing to keep uh, what is scientifically and technologically possible in the public's consciousness. So um, in that sense, I'm not sure um, that it's a good thing. It would be a good thing to talk about, which is, but it would also be a slightly more complicated thing. Look, AI and robots cannot become world leaders. It's technologically impossible at the moment. They, you know, they can't tell the difference between uh, truth and falsehood. They can't make multi-layer judgments. They can't have projects. They can't have empathy. So they don't have the capacity to be world leaders. And if they got close to it, given uh, current technology, they'd be terrible world leaders. So I think in that sense, it's not a good thing because it distracts us from the actual harms in job replacement, in uh, uh, bias increase, et cetera, uh, that the technology already poses. So, no, I don't think it's a good thing on down. Okay, so it sounds like, okay, what you're saying then is by f- by talking about the big picture, we're perhaps losing sight of the smaller things in which AI is already making inroads. That's exactly right. And we're not talking about a correct big picture. It's a sort of future science fiction kind of uh, Terminator uh, anxiety that that conference played into and that's just simply not on the horizon. And it distracts, just like you said, from the areas in which AI is already making inroads. All right. That's good to know. That's good perspective. Uh, thank you so much for your time this morning. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That is Dr. Nir I- um, Ikovich.
who is a professor of philosophy and director of the Applied Ethics Center at the University of Massachusetts at Boston. Uh, you know, see all these stories about AI in the news, and he's right. A lot of them are kind of gimmicky, but they are enough to kind of you know, scare people into saying, look, at, are we actually doing this? This was one of those occasions where they had a press conference with AI humanoid robots talking about ruling the world. Yeah, that's enough to get people concerned about that for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, looking for a little something to do, perhaps this upcoming weekend. Oh, Scott Sean says he covered on that. He thinks you should go to a movie theater. Hi, Scott. Hi, how are you, Simi? How I was your weekend? It was busy, but I'm enjoying having it behind me. Fantastic. I was, I was actually looking forward to Monday. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's uh, if you're looking to, like, as you say, something to do, put your feet up, maybe you want to relax, take a load off, you should go to the movie theater because today is the big day. Mission Impossible 7. 7. Dead Reckoning Part 1 comes out in theaters today. There was some early screenings last night. Today is the official opening day, which is kind of funny because it's Monday. I think they're trying to get a huge, huge, huge opening weekend. So, like, next will, weekend will be though. the first official opening weekend. Yeah, but it's going to be huge. So, I haven't gone to see a movie in, like, a year. I think the last movie I saw in the movie theater was probably... I, either Top Gun Maverick or the last James Bond movie, which I can't remember when that came out. So right. sometime in the last year. Yeah. Those were the last two movies I saw. And I had said to myself, the next movie I will go see in the movie theater is this one. What is the deal with Tom Cruise? Well, the guy, he has somehow managed to um, shed this like uh, Scientologist crazy person image, even though that still kind of persists. But I feel like people have kind of taken on this idea that like, yeah, that's who he is, but we love him anyway, because like you say, Top Gun Maverick, last movie I saw in the theater, and now this movie I'm intent to see on the theater because he does this whole um, marketing campaign around I made these movies to be seen in theaters, and they're so so good. Do we love Tom Cruise, or do we just have an appreciation for the movies that he makes? Because that's what it is for me. Like, I get that there's lots of issues there, but then you go and you're like, man, that Tom Cruise knows how to make a movie. And that's the thing, right? The movies are good. I wouldn't say that about all the Mission Impossible movies. I really didn't like one, two, and three. Right. But four, five, six, great movies. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, I've been looking into this a bit. So Tom Cruise's, basically his partner on the Mission Impossible franchise of late is Christopher McQuarrie, who's like the screenwriter and director of this one. He came on at Mission Impossible 4, which is kind of when they did start to get, have this different tone and become a lot better and stuff. But quick, interesting stat on Top Gun Maverick that you mentioned. So that movie made one and a half half billion dollars. Biggest movie of the summer last year. It was nominated for an Oscar. This movie, very likely to be the biggest movie of this summer, likely to make over a billion dollars. And then less than a year from now, next summer, June 28th is when the sequel to this, Dead Reckoning Part 2, launches, and it will make over a billion dollars. Most of likely. It will. So Tom Cruise will have three summer blockbusters in a row, all worth over a billion dollars. There is no bigger movie star on the planet. So he has developed a reputation in Hollywood as well as being the the star who saved movie theaters. And in fact, I guess Steven Spielberg said this to him at the Academy Awards luncheon because uh, he was nominated for right. Top Gun Maverick, so he was at the luncheon. And Steve was, they said that to him. They pretty much feel like these Hollywood heavy, heavyweights that this is the guy who made people go back to the movie theaters when they thought streaming was here and, yep. and all that was going to end. Nope. 
It didn't. Yeah, and I think in a world where we're um, sort of overwhelmed by so much uh, CGI, computer-generated imaging, and sequels, and uh, old stories being rehashed, and remakes and stuff, and I get Mission Impossible is a bit of that. It's a franchise thing, but it's it feels real because it is. Like, so much was made of the Top Gun stuff that he's actually in the jet and stuff, but in this, you know, we all know he rides the motorbike off the cliff. Yeah, but they, do you know what they saved the CGI? You can't tell me there's not CGI in this movie, because do you know what they yeah, save it for to make Tom Cruise look younger. Yes, yeah, Scott. <laughs> yes. I don't care. I don't care. They drive a train <laughs> off a cliff. They blow up. They blow things up, and they really blow them up. It's so great. I'm when you, so excited. When you see pictures of him, like like paparazzi pictures, are on the red carpet or whatever, you're like, oh yeah, okay. Even Tom Cruise is not immune to getting older, right? Because he's like sixty something yeah. now. And then I see the commercials for the movie, and I'm like, huh. That is not what he looked like when I saw him standing on the red carpet. Yeah, totally. And all the other characters in the movie, like Ving Rhames has been in in this movie franchise the entire time. Yeah, he's 20 aged. Se- 27 years, right? Wow. He's playing, been playing Ethan Hunt for 27 years, and the rest of the characters age, and Tom Cruise just looks the same age, and they keep getting, you know, new female co-stars to go along with him because Haley Atwell is the person who's in this one as the female lead. Well, I will go see this. This is next on my list. And I guess the big thing here is that other movies so far this summer have not done well. Yeah. Right? Indiana Jones did not perform as expected. Like everything has been a disappointment. The Flash has been a disappointment. So there, there's a lot riding on this one. I certainly think so, and I definitely think the hype is there. I mean, I want to talk about it. I'm going to see it one day this week for sure. Wow. And uh, yeah, we'll I think see. it's going to be the movie of the summer. 99% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes as well. I would love to hear from people out there. But what is the next movie that you actually do want to go see in a movie theater? This is Mornings with Simi. Time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer for the Vancouver Sun on this Monday morning. Good morning, Vaughn. Good morning, Simi. I have two movies on my most anticipated oh. list. Do you want to know what they yeah, are? Of course I do. Yes. What are they? You're okay, going to go so, to a movie so theater. The, yeah, I haven't been in a movie theater since the before time, so <laughs> this would be a big deal for me to go back. I'm thinking about it. Uh, these two movies, uh, they're available on uh, trailers online, so the listener can go and have a look themselves both trailers look to me terrific one of them is Oppenheimer oh yes the new Christopher Nolan movie I uh, read an awful lot about the making of the atomic bomb and Oppenheimer is one of the key figures in all that so that's and it's a powerful story because this is a guy whose life ended up being seriously ruined after in the aftermath um the other one is I know you're a fan of David Grant's books. It's Scorsese's adaptation of Killers of the Flower Moon. So I saw the preview for this. And this is an incredible, like Oppenheimer, true story, something that actually happened in Oklahoma in the 1920s. American government handed over a bunch of land to indigenous people, not knowing it had a lot of oil under it. Uh, the indigenous people set out to exploit the oil, uh, organized crime got involved, and the organization that later became the FBI got involved. So very vivid, powerful story. And from the preview, looks to me like this is another incredible Martin Scorsese production. So both those are on my list. 
I think Oppenheimer is out later this summer. Um, and Killers, Killers of the Flower, Flower Moon is October, I think. Yeah, it's in the fall. Yeah, so I got some time to think about it. <laughs> Venturing out of my home command center and blinking into the light and then going into a theater. Nice. But I'm tempted. You know, both of those are on my list, too, especially Killers of the Flower Moon, because I loved the book so much. And apparently, look, you can read the book and watch the movie, which I'm always apprehensive about. But the book, yeah. it sounds like they, they really kind of built it around the Leonardo DiCaprio character, which is not as much of a big deal in the book. So I feel like it's going to be enough of a difference here. Yeah, I think so. And, uh, you know, I, I, uh, since we're plugging David Gran, have you read The Wager? His it's book, next. Which, I just uh, finished a book last uh, night. It's so funny. The Wager is absolutely not. I recommended it to our contributor, Scott Shantz, and he loved it. Edge of your seat stuff about, uh, what, 18th century yeah. ship uh, not sinking, running aground in the most remote part of South America. I, I got a feeling somebody's going to be optioning that for the movies as well. No kidding. Grant's an amazing writer. He writes, you know, the New Yorker writer, and uh, he finds these stories. This one is about as far removed in history as the last one, but uh, he has a way of doing it. Oh, I would highly recommend any of his books, and that Killers of the Flower Moon is going to be a great movie, I hope, but it's yep. Martin Scorsese, so yes, it will be, but also amazing book if people want to check it out. So I'm going to add those. I, those are also on my list, so we can talk about them when they come out, Vaughn. Uh, but let's talk about some meetings that are going on because we, we were talking with David Aiken about, or we will be talking with David Aiken about the NATO meeting happening. Provincially, though, the premiers are also getting together. So the annual council of the federation meetings, which some of us still call the premier's conference, uh, 13 premiers and territorial leaders, Winnipeg this year in the rotation, and the usual long shopping list for the premiers, although I have to think the first and most urgent thing that especially the Western premiers are going to want to talk about is the port strike. The amount of goods that have been tied up and not shipped and not imported is already well into the billions of dollars on this. You've got Alberta and Saskatchewan and the business community all calling on Ottawa to intervene. So it'll be interesting to see whether the premiers come out with one voice and say it's time for the federal government to get involved. All right, the premiers are meeting this week in Winnipeg. We're talking to Vaughn Palmer for the Vancouver Sun about that, Vaughn. So do you think the port strike, Vaughn, is going to be the biggest topic? I think it's probably the most important thing because, you know, the premiers meet every year and they usually have a long wish list. Last year they met, they wanted the federal government to put more money into health care, no strings attached. Ottawa gave them some of what they were asking for with plenty of strings. So the federal government picks and chooses what the premiers ask for and sometimes gives them what they want, sometimes doesn't. Uh, but I think if the premiers with one voice were to say, Ottawa needs to intervene to settle this port strike because the damage it's doing to the Canadian economy, uh, I think that would have an effect on the federal government getting going on it. However, I have to say that one of the biggest obstacles to calling for federal intervention is Premier of British Columbia. So you interviewed uh, David Eby last Thursday. Mm -hmm. uh, the listener can go on to the NW archive and listen to a guy ducking and bobbing and weaving in response right. to a straightforward question. Should the federal government intervene? The union doesn't support federal intervention, so David Eby doesn't support federal intervention. He thinks that, uh, well, you could send in the mediator. Well, let's see. The New Democrats send in a mediator to the Fraser Valley transit strike, which is now approaching four months out there. And even Vince Reddy is asking for more time. So sometimes uh, intervention is a bad idea and premature. And sometimes there are talks where the two sides are so far apart and the damage being done is too big. Um, 
that it's time for intervention. So it'll be interesting to see whether EB joins those calls. Alberta and Saskatchewan are already there. And if Ontario was thinking about the impact on the auto industry, all those parts that come in through Canada, all those cars that come in through British Columbia, uh, Ontario should be calling for it as well. Hmm. Okay. And what about the bail reform issue? Well, that's another good one. You know, again, a reminder that even when Ottawa says, okay, we're going to do it, they don't do it. So the premiers all met, uh, police chiefs and everything leaned on Ottawa beginning of the year. We need bail reform. We need to make it harder for repeat and violent offenders to get bail reform. Federal government went, oh, all right, fine. And they bring in bail reform tabled in Parliament on the 18th of May that would have tightened access to bail. Uh, everybody says, great, thank you. Finally, they did something we wanted. And then it just sat there. And the federal government adjourned Parliament in June without even calling it for debate. Adjourned early, they didn't even call it for debate. So, oh, they're going to take it up in the fall. I still think the problem is that the federal justice, legal, academic establishment doesn't really believe we need bail reform. The premiers think we do. So that's another thing where if the premiers spoke with one voice, as they did at the Western Premiers Conference, and David Eby says it's important that Ottawa gets on with it, and David Eby says he's disappointed they didn't deal with it in the spring. That's something that might get Ottawa's attention and might move things along. Okay, and also the housing crisis is something that we also talked to him about. Yeah, so the Premier met with the Deputy Prime Minister Freeland on Friday in Vancouver, and EB presented some suggestions to Ottawa for things they could do to help with the housing crisis. Federal government could free up more federal land as sites for housing. The federal government could put more money into temporary module housing, modular housing. He suggested some tax breaks under the housing category where the tax breaks would be tailored as incentives to build rental housing. So those are all good ideas. Um, I Freeland met with them. She put out a communique that didn't mention those ideas. She said they had a nice chat about clean energy and a nice chat about uh, um, childcare and pro provincial progress on that. But again, um, it's, it's a challenge for province out here on the West Coast far away from Ottawa to get Ottawa to share BC's priorities, especially when the New Democrats, as you know, struggle to get the federal wing of their party to share BC priorities. But also, it's pretty clear, as you pointed out as well, that the federal government has been paying attention to some big projects uh, and incentives in Ontario and Quebec lately. Yeah, David Eby, quote, he says, uh, you can't really, it's hard to miss. He said, we really need the federal government to be on side in supporting the same level of investment in projects for British Columbia. So he's talking about this giant battery factory that they're building in Windsor, Ontario, and they're giving them billions of dollars, Ontario and Ottawa, to do that. There's been some big federal money for major industrial development in Quebec as well. And the Premier makes a good point. Ottawa does that regularly for the eastern provinces, but it doesn't do the same level of investment proportionally in industrial development kind of future job creation in British Columbia. You know, the traditional stuff, yes, uh, and they certainly are on the same page on child care and some other things. But the Premier has a good point on this. It is a point, Simi, that other British Columbia Premiers have made over the years. And Ottawa has kind of nodded and said, yeah, yeah, we'll get around to it. 
But the evidence is that most of the money for that kind of thing still goes to Ontario and Quebec. Right, because it seems like we can ask for it, but they don't, they're not, we're not really an incentive for that. We're not really a priority. No, we're not. And unlike particularly Quebec, where when Quebec wants something from Ottawa, all the political parties in Quebec speak with one voice. They, they get onto Ottawa, they say, we want this, you're going to have to do this. And generally, because they all speak with one voice, they get it. Whereas in British Columbia, we tend to be kind of all over the map. I mean, I give you the good example that David Eby's priorities and the priorities of the federal NDP are not always the same. And John Horgan found the same thing. So, you know, it's true that we're a long way away and we don't have the political clout of Ontario and Quebec. We don't really make governments the way those provinces do. I think we could get more if we spoke with one voice, particularly since the BC NDP government is on a number of issues, close ideology to the federal liberal government. Hmm, So true. All right, Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the Prime Minister is heading to a NATO summit, and already we're hearing about increasing Canadian commitments. Now, in this case, extending our military presence in Latvia. Why are we doing this? Let's find out. Global's chief political correspondent, David Aiken, is traveling with the Prime Minister and joins us from Latvia this morning. Hi, David. Hi, good morning. Kampadagi, I think I pronounced it the Latvian way. That's uh, just outside of the Latvian capital of Riga, and that's where we have more than 800 Canadian troops already here as part of Operation Reassurance. They've been here since for four years now, since uh, Russia invaded Crimea back in uh, 2017. And that's where the, the first stop for the PM was on uh, his, uh, two, his sort of Baltic tour, if you like, and today announcing uh, uh, you know, a big enhanced uh, commitment, not just to Latvia, but to the defense of uh, Central and Eastern Europe, promising to nearly double the number of Canadian Armed Forces personnel that will be in this part of the world, to 2,200. Most of them will be here in Latvia, but they'll also be elsewhere. Some naval assets, some Air Force assets. And again, that's all part of Operation Reassurance. That that is really to strengthen NATO's eastern border against uh, potential uh, Russian aggression. So that was the the big news here in Latvia. And the Prime Minister, uh, actually in just a few minutes, uh, heads to Lithuania, the the next-door neighbor here in the Baltics, and uh, to the Lithuanian capital of Vilnius, and that's where there's a big NATO summer for the next two days. Okay, and I guess we would expect that the war in Ukraine is still going to be very, very high on the list of topics? Oh, oh it absolutely is. But and, and there's all sorts of issues related to that. And one of them is actually going to be um, defense spending. You've probably heard that NATO wants all of its allies, all the, all the countries in NATO, are supposed to spend up to 2% of their national GDP on defense. And now the feeling is, what, but there may be an agreement or a push for an agreement, that that 2% is the floor, the bare minimum, and get people to spend 3 4 5% on defense. The problem for Canada is we're nowhere near getting to the 2 and we haven't been for a long time. We spend 1.3% of GDP on defense, and this is not a Trudeau government thing. In fact, to be honest, Jimmy, the last time Canada spent 2% on defense, Pierre Trudeau was the prime minister back in 1972. Uh-huh. So uh, this has been a constant issue that Canada is, is a bit of a free rider. That's the, that's the criticism. And I think one of the reasons it was important for the PM to be here in Latvia today, making the announcement about more troops. Oh, also, he is going to spend an, an extra billion dollars on defense. I missed that. That's, uh, again, that's uh, 
on uh, weapons, munitions, cybersecurity. So spending an extra billion and doubling the number of troops here. And that means when he gets around the table in Vilnius in the next couple of days and other leaders are saying, Canada, what are you doing? Why can't you spend? At least he can point to this and say, we're doing this and hope that's enough. So war in Ukraine, yes, but that means everybody's got to spend more to arm themselves. Ukraine's going through ammunition, of course, like crazy. We need to keep sending ammunition to Ukraine. Then Ukraine wants to get into NATO, and and there is some disagreement among the alliance about that. There's a broad agreement that one day Ukraine should be in it, but um, I think there's also some agreement, I think Canada probably on this side, not while the war with Russia is going on. In other words, Russia's got to be defeated first, and then we can talk about Ukraine coming into uh, NATO. There are some other new NATO members, Finland. This is Finland's mm-hmm. first NATO summit. That's important. Sweden uh, is ready to get in. All NATO countries except for Turkey have agreed that Sweden can join. And so there's some last-minute negotiations, because it has to be unanimous, last-minute negotiations to get Turkey to agree to let Sweden in. So that's a big one. Um, and, and then there's also, don't forget, there's China is now a, a, a looming threat for NATO uh, or, or perceived to be a looming threat for many in the NATO alliance. Uh, Japan is going to come and sort of be have some meetings with others at this NATO summit. NATO may establish an office in Japan. So this is a this is a lot of a lot of things happening, and as I say, I think is this could be one of the most consequential NATO summits probably in years. Right, and even you mentioned Finland and Sweden joining NATO. I mean, those were things that Russia was really opposed to, weren't they? Oh yeah, I mean, from a strategic standpoint, I don't know how Putin thinks this is going at all well, uh, no matter what, uh, because he is basically he's a, he's put more NATO on his border. I mean, Finland has a huge border with Russia. And not just that, you know, for, for Canadian security, we, we've been talking on Parliament Hill for the last month or so about Arctic security and how we need to do more to defend our own Arctic. Well, having Finland and Sweden join other Arctic powers like Norway and the United States, uh, that's, that's good for Canada. We can, we can lean on those uh, uh, Finnish forces, Swedish forces, to assist Canada with training, expertise, uh, you name it. So so those two countries coming in and out is a big deal, particularly for Canada. All right, going to be an interesting summit. David, thank you. Hey, thanks so much. Cheers. That's David Aiken, Global National's chief political correspondent, traveling with the Prime Minister in Latvia this morning on their way to Lithuania for the NATO summit, which we will be hearing a lot more about. This is Mornings with Simi. How are you feeling this morning? Did, did you get a good night's sleep or are you feeling a bit dragged out and thinking, no, I could probably have used another hour, maybe two, maybe three? Well, you're certainly not alone in feeling that. Our contributor, Scott Shantz, joins us now to talk about sleep. Scott, are you a good sleeper? I don't feel like I am. For a long time, I really thought that I was, that I could uh, just, you know, do six and a half to seven of hour, ever, hours of sleep every night. And I felt like that was enough for me and I could just push through. And I was like, this is great. And I have realized the older I get, that I have just been gradually wearing away my mental and physical health by not getting <laughs> enough sleep every night. I th- my feeling with sleep is you have to commit to the routine, right? Like you have to, get, I know that I'm going to quote Jennifer Lopez here sure. because JLo looks amazing at her age. And like everybody always says, what is the secret? She does the eight hours of sleep a night and she commits to it. And she says that but all the other things that she does sure, sure too. But the sleep thing is a big deal. Yeah. You know who else talks about that actually is Paul Rudd, who for how old oh, he is, looks look at him. so young. And when people ask him, he's like, yeah, I, I sleep a lot. Like a lot is yeah. what he said. 
But it's a complicated thing, right? I think that this is so many of us, everyone that I talk to, not just people that I work with because we get up at ridiculous hours, but everyone I talk to seems to be not getting enough sleep. Like you mentioned earlier, it's hot out. We have so many things distracting us. And so I spoke with uh, an international well-renowned sleep expert. His name is Dr. Raj Dasgupta, and uh, he's done lots of TV appearances and stuff. He's an expert on sleep. And so my first question for him was, are we actually all terrible at sleep? Is this everyone or am I wrong? And there are some people that are actually like sleeping okay. You know, I, I don't think we could ever do okay with sleep. I think that, you know, when I think about back when, over some of the classic phrases in regards to sleep were kind of like, I can sleep when I'm dead, the early bird gets the worm. I mean, that was the foundation, at least when I started training in sleep medicine. So we've been working uphill from there. And I think we've done like a really good job as far as, you know, raising awareness that sleep affects every single organ in the body, whether it's going to be physically, whether it's going to be mentally. But, you know, we definitely had our speed bumps. One of the biggest ones is going to be the pandemic that we had. And that definitely put a wrinkle in people's sleep evaluations that gave a lot of people insomnia, made a lot of people a night owl. And now that we are, you know, marching forward, I think that there are sleep issues that we definitely need to address. And I feel like, you know, to uh, really be the complete healthy person, but the pillars of getting good health is sleep. So I definitely think that sleep is on the radar and the priority for many people. And now more people are asking about it and to, you know, try to solve the Rubik's cube, which is getting good sleep. What actually is good sleep? You know, I hear like, oh, seven hours a night. Oh, well, six (laughs) hours for some people. No, you'd actually like what qualifies good sleep? Sure. So I say good sleep really is the foundation of two cues, the quantity of sleep, the quality of sleep. And I'll throw one more out there, the regularity of sleep. So when you talk about the quantity, that means how much sleep do you need, which you kind of asked me. And my response is, well, how old are you? And you don't have to tell me your age, but you know, when you're young, you definitely need a lot of sleep. And we can go way back to being an infant, being a toddler, of course, going away to adolescence. They need a lot more sleep. Now, when I throw out a ballpark number, which is seven to nine hours of sleep, which is kind of the recommendations of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, those are for adults like me and you. But, you know, it's sad that as you get older, you still need as much sleep, but it's so hard to get when you're older. So, of course, quantity is one thing. The next thing is the quality of sleep. You are getting the right quantity of sleep, but you still don't feel refreshed during the day. You're still fatigued during the day. Maybe it's a quality issue. Something's causing you to wake up multiple arousals and awakenings throughout the night. And the last thing is I said regularity. So even if you are getting the good quantity and quality sleep, you want to be consistent with your sleep. And that's also very hard to do. So uh, that's what I consider some of the core factors that kind of add up to getting good sleep. Yeah, I mean, that consistency thing is a is a huge piece. Um, but it just, it sort of feels like this is, even though it's so important, we've made sleep, it's like the last thing that gets prioritized, right? It's like, oh, mm-hmm. I'll just get up a little extra early to do this. I'll like, maybe, can you give us some steps that like help maybe sort of cultivate a routine? Like how, like where would a person sure. even start? It's like, my life's all over the place. I just make it easy for me, you know? 
Right. So I would say the, the first statement always has to be sleep is very individualized because when you make recommendations, they may not apply to everyone, you know, but I'm going to mention something called sleep hygiene right now. And these are some general rules, which is going to be, if you feel you're not sleeping well, that may not be the, the week to, you know, take up alcohol. If you're not sleeping well, that may not be the time to mask it by drinking lots of caffeine in the morning. If you're not sleeping well, maybe that cell phone, and I'm a big culprit of that, I'm not pointing fingers at anyone, may not be the best thing to bring to bed at nighttime. And I also will say when we talk about getting good sleep, it's not just the person. I know we always say it's individualized, it's you, it's you. But, you you know, if, if you're married and you have kids, everyone has to be involved. You know, I have a wife and three kids. And, you know, if we're all not on the same page about waking up at the same time, being consistent, having a, a routine before going to bed, you know, it's just not going to work. So it is something that you want to get your whole unit together, your whole family together, and be on, and be on the same page. That's Dr. Raj Dasgupta. He's an expert in sleep medicine and a clinical researcher in sleep. That last takeaway there about making sure that everyone in your family is on the same page about sleep. Because for so long, my wife and I opposite schedules. You sleep here, I'll sleep there. We'll do it at different times. And then of course you bring in kids who have no sleep schedule. No wonder I'm having terrible sleep and we're all trying to like manage this different. No one's getting good sleep in my house. Oh, that sounds terrible. I know that when I was doing like this morning shift when my kids were little, it was great because I I would go to bed with the kids. And so their bedtime was my bedtime. Therefore, it was a household priority, right? They had to go to bed because mommy has to go to bed. Right. And so we all, we had to do that. It worked really well. It was like 8.30, boom, everybody in bed. Now, of course, it's a little bit different. Yeah. But when I, when I took on this uh, shift, however many years ago now, I remember I sat down with the family and I had to say, listen, this is what's going to happen. We're going to, I'm going to do this, Mm -hmm. but I need, I need your help and support. I don't want people saying, oh, stay up a little bit longer or, you know, I wanted to get into a routine. I want to commit to the routine, which is what I do. So, you know, no matter what's going on, it's a full stop at 730 upstairs, uh, you know, some puttering around, doing a few things, but in bed, lights out 830. And your family supports that. They're on board. That's great. Yes. That's huge. Quiet time. No running around upstairs, no clomping up and down the stairs, no slamming the front door, none of that kind of stuff after 830. I love it. I feel like maybe I need to put some harder boundaries on my family, sleep boundaries. You've got to prioritize your sleep, Scott. Sounds like it. Yeah, absolutely. Like, how much do you get a night? Uh, probably about five and a half right now. Yeah. Scott, what are you doing? Yeah, not enough. I, well, it's just, it's so hard. It's so, the kids are awake. They wake up in the middle of the night. You know, uh, my wife stays up a little bit later than I usually wake up when she comes to bed. And I know I wake her up when I get up, you know, and these are all of the things that we're trying to figure out how to do better. And, you know, there are suggestions like, oh, try different bedrooms, try, you know, try different things like that, which we're open to, but it's like a, it's a figuring out process, you know? And then of course you're trying to make these decisions on five hours of sleep and it all feels crazy. No, you need, like I get seven 
And that's kind of my, although I didn't last night, I feel, I'm feeling it, but that's, you got to get into the routine. That's why you got to make sure you get that seven. Right? Yeah. And like you mentioned, it's definitely harder in the summer too, because there's stuff going on in the evenings. Oh, I know. You want to be a part of it. It's, it's daylight. I can hear people having a great time outside, but, but, and I don't nap during the day because I want to be able to just hit my head on the pillow and be out like a light right. when bedtime comes. And see that you're very disciplined in that respect too. I shouldn't nap, but I get home and I'm oh, like, oh, I'll just close my eyes for a few minutes. I know. Got to keep moving. Got to do stuff. I guess so. <laughs> I need to busy up my life some more like you. I think, well, you're not, I, it's the work. Like I have a schedule of things that I do when I get home because I'm trying to stay busy so that I, because if I sit down, I will fall asleep. Okay. That's exactly what happens, right? So how, you say you got five, five and a half hours of sleep a night? You got it. Okay. I get seven. I would love to hear from people. How many hours of sleep at night do you get on average? Are you happy with it? Or do you think, no, I've got to sleep more? This is Mornings with Simi. Do you know that BC has a climate action tax credit and you could be receiving it because there are some changes this year in terms of eligibility and who could be getting it? So we thought if you're getting a check or not, you should probably know why that is. So joining us now to talk about it is Katrina Conroy, who's BC's Minister of Finance. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks, Simi. Good to be here. So what has changed this year? Well, we've increased the, the uh, climate action tax credit so that people are going to be getting more money. And, and most people will already have gotten it, even though, as you said, it, it actually comes uh, through Canada Revenue Agency. So it comes directly, it's a direct deposit or a check and usually appears on a bank statement as a payment from the government of Canada. But it's actually a payment from the government of British Columbia. And that's the way that we could make sure people get it quick. So people should have started to get it uh, probably starting last week. Okay, so this would be a check. So why do we get this? Well, we get it because we want to make sure that the uh, the um, carbon tax that, that everybody's paying, that people that uh, are low income or middle income, they get some of that back. And right now we're up to, you know, a substantial amount of people starting to get uh, to get that back into their pockets just to help people out. I mean, we, we have to have a carbon tax credit in this in this province. It's a, it's a federal initiative. Um, so we are making sure that, uh, that, that we, we are going to do that, but at the same time that uh, we're helping people out with the cost. Okay, so then is what is the ceiling for this? So people making up to a certain amount of money, right? Right. So for individuals, um, it's it's phased out once if you're earning more than eighty thousand for or seventy nine thousand. So that's for individuals. But if say for a family of four, for instance, um, it's phased out at one hundred and fifty thousand. So we've increased those thresholds to make sure that uh, we're making sure more people get it. So it's it's actually about eighty five percent of people will either get a full or a partial credit. Okay, and just so people understand, where is this money coming from? Well, it's coming from the carbon tax that everybody pays through different ways. And we're just wanting to make sure that uh, when they pay that, they also get some of that back to help them with those costs. And, and we're, when we did our analysis, we, we feel that by as we increase the, the payments, we feel by 2030, the majority of people will be getting more back than what they'll actually pay. But it also is an incentive for industry, for people to be aware of what they're, when they're doing when it comes to the climate and, and carbon tax. I think that's a, that was going to be my question. Then people would ask, if that's the case, if they're giving money back, then why not just lower the carbon tax? Well, it's, it's a way, it's an incentive. And it, it, it has worked. It has helped. We also use the money to help 
um, different industries to to lower their uh, their emissions, which has been very successful because it's it's something that we all have to work together at, right? I mean, I think everybody can feel the effect of climate change right now with the the heat in this province, the wildfires. Um, we have some drought issues, so you know those things are part of climate change, and we all need to be responsible. Okay, so people should have start to notice this perhaps last week, but coming into this week for sure. Yeah, yeah, it should have been like some people have said to me they've already gotten it, but uh, they just need to look on their bank statements or on their, you know, on their um, their credit union statements, you know, just to see that it, it has already come or or it will be coming soon. It comes with the um, GST credit. Ah, as well. okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Also, we know this week we've been hearing about a bank, a potential Bank of Canada interest rate hike. Uh, another one. What are your thoughts on that? Are, are you are you a little apprehensive about that? Yeah, it's concerning. Um, I mean, we. Uh, I'm especially concerned for people who are renegotiating their their mortgages are coming due, and they had a very very low mortgage rate. Some people were like one percent, two percent, and now you're jumping up to substantially. It, it's going to be hard for people, which is our concern, and that's why we've brought in a number of affordability measures to help people. But I think you know, I'm hoping that this will be the last one that they that the Bank of Canada raises, and and then we can you know start to see things uh, like balance out a bit. Well, when is the next fiscal update then for BC? How are things going? Well, we should uh, be having a fiscal update for the end of last year in uh, by the end of August when it goes uh, public accounts will announce where we stand. Um, so to Excuse me. Right now, I know we're, we're as a province, we we still have a fairly strong economy, um, but we want to make sure that uh, the people that aren't benefiting are are supported. So that's why we brought in a number of affordability issues in the uh, or supports in the last budget. But I mean, it is it is a concern. I mean, we uh, anybody who's got a mortgage or a loan is is uh, are probably watching with bated breath. Yeah, I think they are too. So when you see that there's another rate coming and that's obviously going to put more pressure on people, is that something that you're constantly evaluating then about where the pressure points are? Definitely. And, and you know, it is a federal issue. Like they're the ones that are, you know, the Bank of Canada and, and the feds are, are responsible for that and the and inflation, so to speak. But what we're responsible for is, is looking at what we can do to help people. And that is why, as I said, we brought in a number of affordability measures for people. And every little bit helps. And I think uh, when I tabled the budget, Simi, one of the ones that we thought, well, this is a good thing to do. It's an equity thing. It's a, you know, a gender equity. When we, we announced uh, free prescription contraceptives for people. And the input we got on it was substantial. You know, even it's you know can be around twenty five thirty dollars a month, but over a year it can be significant. You know, it adds up. But we got so much feedback on it, people saying that little bit was going to help them significantly. So you know, it, it's you know when we can do things like that, we see what can we do to help people. And and, and you know, adding in the the BC Family Benefit, how we increase that, and and um, up to adding an additional five hundred dollars for single parents, which is substantial for them so you know there, there's things that we can do to help out through our the, the venues that we have uh, raising the the rates of the bank of canada is, is out of our scope i know so the bc family benefit you just mentioned that that's going to increase later this month this month yeah 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 that'll be should be in people's uh, bank accounts i think the 20th okay and do people have to do anything for that or is it just yeah. automatically based on tax your tax revenue or your income yeah. that you filed it's based on the income that you filed yeah so it's uh, definitely and that has increased as well 
So we put uh, increased that, and as I said, added the $500 for single parents. Okay, so clearly there are some supports out there, but I guess it never ends, does it, when you consider what kind of impact? We don't know what kind of impact this, this, this rate hike might have. No, we don't. And then it's, you know, it's hard for people, as I said, who are renegotiating their mortgages or loans. And, you know, that that's a tough one. So we, we just want to monitor things and, and see what we can do to help out. But it's, uh, you know, it is, as I said, everything that we have done with the budget has been focused on, on those cost of living measures. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. Well, thanks, Amy. Always good to talk about good news. So, well, we hope, right? We yeah, hope. Well, <laughs> yes. When it comes to the uh, to the climate action tax credit for people, I think it is good news. So, it's it's good to be able to talk about it. All right. Well, thanks for your time. That's Katrina Conroy, BC's Minister of Finance. So, talking about a couple of different things that you may be eligible for, and you may be wondering why does this money keep showing up, right? Because you would have gotten the federal grocery rebate. Uh, GST rebate happened last week. And part of this also, you might be wondering, why is this bigger? You might have now been, because of expanded eligibility, you may have also gotten BC's climate action tax credit. Uh, The eligibility threshold for that was raised for this year. So that might be an unexpected uh, bonus for you. And as well, later this month, they're going to, the family benefit will also increase. That is provincial, but you'll get that money. But maybe it came into your bank account. Maybe you got the check for it, but it'll come from the Canada Revenue Agency. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, we love talking about the BC Lions on a Monday, but we especially love talking about the Lions on a Monday when they won, which they did over the weekend. So Coach Rick Campbell is with us. Morning, Coach. Good morning. How are you? I am good. Thank you. So 35-19 over Montreal. What was the key? Um, It was a really good win. Montreal is a good team, and I thought it was important to to bounce back. And I think we played an all-around good game. We, um, on offense, defense, special teams, um, we weren't perfect, but we uh, we kept fighting and, and got the job done. So it was, uh, like I said, it was good to win. And we're, we're heading into a bye week and we're four and one. So, uh, you know, so far so good. Okay. But tell me about a couple of the key standouts here. Cause one of them I know is this is the new running back, right? Sean Shivers, who, well, he's only been in Canada, what, two weeks? Yeah, and he's probably five six, I would say. So he is—he's not tall for a football player, but um, he's very compact and he—he's um, physical and he works hard and stuff. So he made some very big plays, and so that was good to see him uh, step in and do some good stuff. Now I understand you—you you saw some of that in practice, right? You were kind of expecting this. Yeah, it's always fun when it translates um, from practice to the game. So he was a guy that stood out in practice, and he's very fast. And so it was good to see him uh, to make some good good plays. Okay, and so there was a real bounce back here, right? After the loss last game, you guys are now 4-1. and one. How? What is the team morale like right now? Um, I think it's pretty good. We have a bye week coming up, so it's good. We're good. The players are going to have a few days off. And uh, we've been going nonstop since training camp in May. So I think it's good for everyone to to take a deep breath, and then uh, we come back and play Saskatchewan here at, on the next, um, on Saturday. So uh, we got a lot of work to do. So if we keep the mindset of uh, working hard to get better, then, uh, you know, we can do some good things. Does it worry you a little bit, though, like when it comes to the bye week, when, when you are on, you know, when you have had some success, like for any team, really, that you worry about momentum? Um, a little bit, but I, I kind of think we're in the mode. Like I said, we've been going nonstop since May, so I think it's going to be good for everybody to uh, to take a few days to take a deep breath, and then we come back early and um, get an extra practice in to get our get our minds right again. And so, 
um, you know, hopefully people can uh, rest up physically and mentally and then uh, onward we go. Okay. Now, coach, I've had a lot of people ask me this because they know I talk to you on Mondays, but they just want to know, like, what is with the BC Lions this year? What has been the key, do you think? This looks like a bit of a different team, right, from the last couple of years. What has been key? There, uh, I think we have some really quality people, which is important. So um, in pro sports, um, the talent level is usually pretty equal, and a lot of the games are really close. And if you have some uh, really solid people that um, have some character to them, I think it makes a big difference. And then we're fortunate to have a lot of, a lot of quality people on our team. Now, you mentioned the next game is July 22nd, hosting Saskatchewan. What do we know yeah. about the Rough Riders? Yeah, they're good. They're three and one. Um, they play this week against Calgary, and uh, they're a good team. The West is always really tough, and so um, it's no different this year. We're, Winnipeg's four and one. We're four and one, and uh, Saskatchewan's three and one. So, like I said, there's a lot of work to do, and uh, that's why we need to to get some rest and then uh, get back at it. Okay, yeah, but you have a bye week. But do you actually rest during that bye week? Uh, for, for a few days. Yeah. Well, I mean, cause we don't play for really 12 more days. So, uh, well, we go into work today and we'll watch the film with the guys and, um, you know, evaluate ourselves and do all that stuff. And then, uh, the players will get a, a few days off and then we're back at it. All right. Well, it was a great game. Good luck. Enjoy your bye week. All right. Thanks. Have a good day. You too. That is Rick Campbell, coach of the BC Lions. And you know what? They're looking great this year. It's a joy to watch those games. And they just won again, 35-19 over Montreal. Puts them at four and one for the season, but they're heading into a bye week now. Next game, as we mentioned, it's July 22nd versus Saskatchewan, which you know will be a great one. And of course, you can listen to those BC Lions games on CKW AM 730 as well. So Great stuff, right? It is a joy to watch them these days. This is Mornings with Simi. It seems like kind of a bizarre idea, right? This idea that we've had this medication around, we've been using it to help treat acne and prevent malaria, and yet it could also help us do something else. There is a trial going on, a clinical trial here in Vancouver to determine if this particular medication could actually help prevent bacterial sexually transmitted infections. So we, I'm not a doctor, so I can't explain all this to you, but that's how we bring people in to help me with that. So Dr. Troy Grennan is with us now, the physician lead for the Provincial HIV STI program at the BC Centre for Disease Control, also a clinical assistant professor of infectious diseases at UBC. Dr. Grennan, thank you for joining us. Nice to be here. Thank you. So tell me about this trial then. Is this, is this groundbreaking? Um, you know, the idea I think is certainly groundbreaking. So uh, I, along with a few other researchers from across the country, are leading this trial. Uh, so it is based in BC right now. You know, I'm based in BC, but it is happening across the country. And it does build on a few recent trials that have looked at this very idea. So the antibiotic is doxycycline, which, as you mentioned, has been around for decades. We've been using it clinically for decades for a number of reasons. And um, so a few years ago, a, a study was published that looked at its use in preventing uh, bacterial STIs such as syphilis, chlamydia, and also there's also been looks at gonorrhea as well um, in terms of its use in preventing these infections. Okay, so is this something that researchers are turning their attention to more and more? Is like, how do we know that some of these medications that have been around might be good for something else? Well, 
It's an, the reason doxycycline was specifically chosen for this use is because we do know, so doxycycline is used for many different things. As you mentioned, acne, prevention of malaria. Um, it's also used for a variety of other infections, as, as are many antibiotics. But we do know that doxycycline is actually one of the recommended treatments for both syphilis and chlamydia. So we already knew it worked for these two infections to treat them. The, the novel part of this is that when you take it either before um, a sexual encounter, so as pre-exposure prophylaxis or a PrEP, or if you take it right after PEP, post-exposure prophylaxis, uh, it has also been shown in some studies to prevent the occurrence of these infections. So not only has it been used to treat them, and we know we use them very routinely to treat these infections, but we now know from these few studies that we can take this medication either before or right after, and it can prevent them from happening. Hmm. Okay, now these STIs that you're talking about here, have we seen a recurrence of these? Are the numbers kind of creeping back up? Well, so uh, yes, the the short answer is yes. And specifically syphilis, we've been talking about syphilis a lot in BC and across Canada for, for many years. And over the last decade in Canada, syphilis has increased by about nearly 400%. So it's, it's huge. You know, it's a, it's a really big problem. And uh, at the BC CDC specifically, we have a lot of activities going on, which are really meant to try to stem the, the, the increase. We're seeing a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of cases, both here in Vancouver, across BC, but really across Canada and many parts of the world, actually. Uh, chlamydia as well. Chlamydia has increased to a lesser extent, um, but it also has increased as well. Have they become harder to treat? I mean, in terms of the, the, the medications that we use to treat them, yeah. specifically, specifically around syphilis and chlamydia, not really. There has been a little bit of resistance, not with doxycycline, but with one of the other medications that we use uh, to treat chlamydia. Certainly, if we, we bring gonorrhea into the fold, that's a resistance issue there. The, the, the major challenges that we've had in treating these infections, especially more recently, is uh, folks who are getting impacted by these infections often have a lot of barriers to care, so barriers to access to care. So they might be struggling with mental health issues, they might be homeless or not have great housing. Uh, there might be a number of other things going on with them that, that makes it hard for them to access care. So in that respect, uh, there have been issues in treating these infections currently. Okay, so if there's barriers in access to care, how will treating it with this particular drug then change that? Well, it's, um, it's a good question. So first off, our trial, the DISCO trial, is really focusing its attention and really looking to recruit individuals who have been historically more disproportionately impacted by STI. So specifically our trial and the other trials that have preceded it are looking at the use of doxycycline in individuals who are part of the gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men community, the, the MSM community, as well as transgender women. Because we know these key populations have been disproportionately burdened and impacted by uh, these bacterial STIs over the years. So in terms of access, we, you know, the, the, certainly the, um, the trial is providing a method, a novel method by which folks can try to be proactive and help prevent these STIs. And it may prevent some barriers for some, you know, it may prevent the need for them to, you know, wait for symptoms to occur before, before uh, coming to seek treatment. And, you know, they're, they're already in the trial and they're taking this daily and they're getting supported by, by, you know, the, the, the care team with the trial, but, 
um, it's really focused on those key populations for this particular trial. Right. Okay. And I, I understand that you're looking to recruit some people for the trial as well. Yeah, we're actually well into recruitment already, uh, at least in Vancouver. Um, like I said, um, it's going on across the country. There's six or seven cities across the country that are recruiting. We, we are the first um, we are the first city to be recruiting. We've been recruiting for a few weeks now. But yeah, we are, we are looking to recruit folks into the study for sure. Okay. Are, are there any side effects with this particular drug? I mean, we talked about it being used for malaria, for, for acne. Are there any concerns about it? Well, the, um, like, like you mentioned at the outset, there are, we, we do have decades of clinic, collective clinical experience with this medication. Uh, so we've been using it as a medical community since the 60s. So we do have a fairly good idea about its side effect profile. And also from the, the recent trials for this particular indication, we've, um, we've, we've seen uh, what, it, what, what can happen with it. So the, the most common side effects with doxycycline and any, any medication in that same family, which is the larger tetracycline family, um, is, is mild GI upset. So things like, you know, nausea, stomach ache, maybe some, a bit of diarrhea, which generally is improved or reduced by taking the medication with food. And usually over time, if it does happen, it happens in a minority of people, but if it does happen, um, it's usually um, short-lived and goes away. Now, Dr. Grennan, this sounds like it is pretty revolutionary, what you're trying to do here. Would you classify it as such? I, I mean, I think so. I, I, I certainly can't take credit for the idea because I'm on the ideas who've worked on this. I think our study is particularly innovative because it's doing something that none of the other studies have done so far, and that's comparing these two different approaches. So we do have a lot of data on doxycycline PEP, so the post-exposure prophylaxis that's been published. There was a recent article in the New England Journal of Medicine that was published on, on a trial in the U.S., but not a lot has been done on doxycycline prep, which is that alternative way of taking it where you take it daily uh, instead of just after um, um, an encounter. And what we're going to do is we're going to compare those two interventions to see if one is better. And we're looking at a number of things. You know, we're looking at how well it works, but also we're looking at side effects, safety. We're looking at um, any concerns around the, the development of a resistance, antibiotic resistance. So these are all things we're looking at in this trial. So interesting. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Why are we hearing so many stories in the news recently about, you know, book bans happening? I know it happens in the United States, but there's attempts to do this here in Canada as well. It makes it very challenging for librarians, for people who work in libraries. And the thing is, there are protocols for this, right? If people don't like a book, obviously that's happened in the past before. Uh, there, there are ways to go about talking about that. So what is going on here and how difficult has it become uh, to defend books in some of these situations? Well, joining us now is Richard Baudry, who's a program coordinator of the Teacher Librarian Program at the University of British Columbia. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, good morning. Is this a problem that you have been hearing about even here in B.C.? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, it, it's happening pretty much uh, everywhere in Canada. Um, there are groups uh, and parents and, uh, specifically who um, decide that there's a book that they don't like. Uh, and what they do is they go to either the school or the public library and they say, I think this book should not be read by children. Um, and then they say it needs to be removed. Now, 
you know, we all believe that it's important for parents to have concerns about books that they do all want their kids to read. And, and I'm all for that myself. The issue, though, is that they say, okay, not just my kids, everyone. And that's where the problem occurs. There are in schools, uh, districts all across Canada, um, basically protocols in place for uh, reconsideration of material. And the, the, the material has already been chosen in any public library or school library uh, where they have the opportunity to evaluate the book before it's put into the collection. And so then a review is done if somebody has a concern about the book. Usually when a, a parent or an outside group doesn't want that to happen, they don't, they don't want to go through the protocol process. They don't want to go through uh, the policies in place where the book is evaluated by a group of people, including a librarian, an administrator, uh, an English teacher, and so on and so forth. They just want the book removed. And so it, it uh, and so what they've done, a perfect case, Ottawa in 2019, a parent went into a school, wanted the book Drama removed. Uh, it's a book about a play. Um, it's a graphic novel. It went into one particular school, said, I don't want my kid reading this book. I don't think anybody in the school should read it. They were told after an evaluation of the book that the book was staying in the collection. So they went to the board and the board's reaction was have all the books removed from everywhere in the school district. And so it, it went to the news. It was reported in the Canadian press. And then the, the district uh, backed off. The same thing happened last year in the Durham School Board. Um, some parents went in. They had some concern about uh, a book by uh, Robertson, um, uh, Big Bear. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, The Great Bear, sorry. Uh, the Misugov Saga. And the book uh, was ordered removed from all the schools uh, in that particular district who had that book. Again, no reason given to it, just that there's been a complaint. So when it went to the school board, uh, I was there uh, through Zoom, and uh, we asked some questions as part of the, uh, the Intellectual Freedom Committee for the Canadian Federation of Library Associations, and they did give a reason. The thing that's, that's regrettable is that the decision is made even though they have in place really good protocols for choosing the material. Well, I guess I'm curious about then how those protocols came to be. Is this because this kind of situation does pop up periodically where every once in a while it happens, therefore that's why we did that? Yeah, absolutely. There are people who have some concerns about materials all the time, and this is something that's been in libraries for a long time. What's different is that people are trying to skirt those protocols. They don't want to go through them. They just want things to be done. Um, in particular, there's a group, uh, NBC, uh, that has chapters across Canada, Action for Canada. They basically don't want books on LGBTQ in, in, uh, in public or school libraries. And so they sent a letter, a threatening letter to a certain degree, basically telling uh, public librarians and school librarians that uh, they're pornographers because they have books on the SOGI uh, uh, 123 uh, curriculum in their libraries. Uh, again, these are books chosen by the government in, in here in BC and in Alberta. These are books that relate to uh, alternative families that we have in Canada, and we teach about that in grade two in BC. So we, we want to have kids understand this diversity in our families, but then they come along and say, all these books if they're in your collection, they are pornography. Right. Okay, but there's there's a Supreme Court ruling about this, isn't there, Richard? 
There was in, in uh, 2002, yes. Uh, Supreme Court, basically, there was the Surrey Book case. Uh, the Surrey Book case, uh, basically, they had three books that a teacher wanted to use in a classroom to teach diverse families. Uh, it went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruling basically says there, there has to be a need to teach about tolerance, right? And that you can make a complaint as an individual about a book, but that you can't make a decision for the whole community. Right. In a nutshell. Okay. And I do remember that because I remember in the 1990s where this was, you know, a big controversial deal. And then it was right. pretty quiet for 15, 20 years now. So is this cyclical in some way as well? Well, it's cyclical, but I think it's also attaching itself to what's happening in the United States right now. There's a lot of uh, basically attacks on, uh, especially LGBTQ materials, but also minority books and authors. Uh, and some of that is coming into Canada, where they're basically saying, oh, yes, we want parents to take over education. But I think that what, what worries me is the fact that they're saying that professionals who've gone to university, who've taken courses on how to evaluate materials and how to use resources and how to work with the curriculum and how to collaborate with teachers are being told, well, you don't know what you're doing. I do. Even though they don't know the curriculum and they haven't studied evaluation methodology and, and all these things. So it is a bit of a concern now that people are basically saying we know better right. than all these professionals who are out there who've made all these decisions. And this is not just a decision based on, uh, especially in the school system, it's not just something that's based on, on just one school. It's a curriculum that comes from the government going all the way down to students. And nothing is done quickly, I know, given how governments <laughs> work in terms of curriculum. Nothing is done quickly. So for parents who do have questions, and like you're right, maybe they think that a librarian is just going out and buying these books and putting them on the shelf. What is yeah. the protocol for putting a book on a shelf? Well, usually uh, if, if you buy something, especially when it comes to uh, school libraries, uh, it, it, things are chosen based on curriculum, on content, and on, on uh, also age group, a, you know, we buy obviously uh, age appropriate materials. That's very important. Uh, we don't want kids to read something that a kid who's 17 years old in, in high school in English um, advanced placement would read in grade one. But the other thing is, is that the books are chosen based on, again, uh, the reading materials that are out there, the reviews that are out there, the evaluations that have been done, the recommendations for the government. And so these books are basically bought and they're put in. Uh, a lot of books are based on what the kids are reading uh, in the classroom so that they can have extra material in the library. Um, and, and kids have interest. I mean, I don't know any library that doesn't have anything on dinosaurs um, because, you know, all the kids right. love dinosaurs. Yes. So these are the kind of things that you buy. The other thing that's important, too, is, and this is something that happened in the state of Texas that's very worrisome for, for, for myself here and, and Canadian schools. In, in Texas, they have a new law basically that says, okay, you can have books on climate change, but you also have to have books that basically state that climate change isn't real. So, you know, that's not the kind of book I think that we would like to buy and put in our schools. That would be a concern. Wow. We're, we're not doing that here now, but, you know, that's the kind of things that are happening in states uh, which we do not want to have exported into Canada. Well, thanks for explaining it to us this morning. We appreciate your time. Thank you.